He's seated. Very good. We're in the book of John, uh, chapter 3. It's good to be here. We looked at last Sunday, the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. He has delivered a great testimony to Nicodemus on how to see and enter the kingdom of God. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. Nicodemus comes there and he begins to tell Jesus of what he knew and what everybody was saying about Jesus. We, we, we've been watching you. We've been monitoring you. We've been discussing you. And during that conversation, Jesus says, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, speaking of the Godhead. And you do not receive our testimony. The problem is not intellect. The problem is not you not understanding what I'm saying, Nicodemus. The problem is you don't approve of the witness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And that goes to unbelief. That's your issue. And that's every human being's issue. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you bow the knee to him when he calls you? And so he leaves there. And from verse 22 to the remainder of this chapter, we will see the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry, they overlap. And the reason that's a point of note is in the synoptic gospels, they don't overlap. John the Baptist is the forerunner. He stays ahead of Jesus, proclaiming that he is coming. And they never truly meet. But in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit allows us to see them, that their ministries intertwine there. And that we'll look at that this morning also. John wants us to understand that uh, there's a contrast between John the Baptist's ministry and his baptism and the baptism of Jesus Christ that he's bringing. Uh, John wants us to understand that. And John also wants us to understand the religious leaders, they say that John the Baptist is a prophet, but yet and still they don't agree to what he says about Jesus Christ. So really they're saying he's a false prophet because Jesus is saying that the Messiah is God and they don't agree with that. So we'll be looking at all those things, but we'll pick up in verse 22 of chapter three. After these things, and I'm glad there's always after these things, whether you're in a good season or a bad season or difficult time, there's always going to be after these things. Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, most likely to the river of Jordan in that area. And there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing in Adnan near Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. This statement's revealed John's gospel. It also supplements the other gospels. It shows that the readers knew about John's imprisonment, either from the other gospels or from church tradition. Verse 25 tells us, then there arose a dispute. This is what the New King James says. 
Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifications. The NIV reads like this, and I like it better here. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washings. That clears it up a little bit bit better. It seems that John's disciples started this argument, but we're not told exactly why they were arguing about this ritual purification here. I don't know if John's followers wanted this certain guy to be with John the Baptist team. I don't understand that. We have to understand that the Essenes also were in this area. They were baptized. And of course, the Pharisees, they were there baptizing also. So maybe this Jew said, hey, why would I want to be baptized with John's baptism? Because John and his followers are very strict. Besides, I would rather go to Jesus's baptisms because the larger crowd is there and Jesus still hangs out with publicans and sinners. And I don't, I don't have to be so strict there. He just didn't understand. So verse 26 tells us they came to John, his disciples now, and said to him, Rabbi, that man, speaking of Jesus Christ, that's the one they have problems with here. That man who was with you, On the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, the one you said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one you said, he is before me because he was preferred before me. That guy, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. They're a little upset about that. John was fine with it. They were very envious of the issue. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from above, from God. That's what he states, means by that. And that still stands true for today. It was the prophet Daniel who said in Daniel 4, chapter 17, the latter part, that the most high rules in the kingdom of men And gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest, I like the King James, the basis of men. Jesus still controls this world. He allows things to happen in it for his benefit. That's what John the Baptist is telling his disciples as of now. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John saying, don't act. Like you're brand new. My sister-in-law tells me that all the time. And what she means by don't act like you're brand new, you know how we act around here. You've seen it before. So don't be surprised at what I'm saying here. That's what John is saying. You were there when I answered the priests and the Levites. John's goal, his only aim in life was to fulfill God's purposes as Jesus' forerunner. He wasn't about seeking his own glory. And so verse 29 tells us, John continues speaking, he who has the bride, and that's the church, is the bridegroom. John says, 
I'm not the bridegroom. I don't have the bride, the church. He does. He says, but the friend of the bridegroom, that's John. And that word friend, the closest word to it is shoshben in, in the Greek. And it's kind of like the best man. It was a highly honored position that involved much joy. John says, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, only stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Remember when the queen of Sheba, she'd heard so much about Solomon and his kingdom, and she really didn't believe it. So one day she says, we're going to check this place out. And she goes and she sees everything that's going on in Solomon's kingdom, in the temple, all of the glory that was in there and all of the settings and the orderly things that would happen in the temple. She says this, happy are your men and happy are these your servants. Why? Who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. John understands this. Just to hear Jesus' voice, to be in his presence is honor and joy enough for John. We get to hear his word every time we pick up the scriptures. We get to hear his voice speaking to us. That's a privilege. That's an honor that should bring joy to us. And the emphasis of joy, it was so important at weddings, that many of the later rabbis said you could skip the, the ritual prayers. And even if you had a wedding during, during Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, you didn't even have to live in these tents just because a wedding was about to take place. So they had a great time at this wed at weddings. And that's what we will enjoy in the kingdom of heaven, a great wedding feast. John the Baptist says, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. I'm satisfied. Verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John was willing to become less prominent, less noticeable. Not that we, he had any less value. We think if we're up front, front and center, that if people are seeing, me, seeing you, that you are more important. God doesn't see it like that. The Holy Spirit prompts Paul in 1 Corinthians to say this, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Of course it is. Colossians tells us that the head is the most important. And Jesus Christ is our head. He is the preeminence. We are only the body. Privileged to be a part of it when we confess our sins, repent of our sins, and give our life to Jesus Christ. No matter if I'm a little toe or a piece of hair, I'm still a part of the body. And the Lord loves me. And the Lord loves you no matter 
if you're up here speaking, teaching the word, or working in the nursery, or the children ministry, or sweeping the floors. We're serving the Lord. You're part of the body. And that's what matters. And John understood that. The Baptist, once again, he is an example of a true witness. He's not concerned about his own agenda or his own position, but he understands the privilege he has been given to serve Christ. We must seek the glory of Jesus Christ. And when we go out and minister and we're seeking his glory, that's when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us. And we serve because of that joy we have. He says in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. And then he says, he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven, speaking of Jesus Christ, is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. Of everything he's seen and heard from the foundations of the world. Remember when the apostle Paul, they had stoned him. He was probably put to death. And yet he speaks of going up to the third heaven and seeing things and hearing things that is best for him not to try to explain it because it would be difficult for him to do those things. That's where we're headed to live and reign with Jesus. He says in verse 33, he who has received his testimony, Jesus' testimony has certified that God is true. That word certified for jizzo to place a seal on. So when you believe, not with a head knowledge, but with a heart knowledge, Jesus Christ places a seal on us, claiming us. Ephesians explains it a little better. Chapter one, verses 13 through 14, Paul says this, in him, speaking of Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, here it is, you were sealed. We find out here what that certification is. He says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee. That word guarantee is the Arabon, the earnest money. When you purchase a home, you put down that down payment. That's the earnest money that the whole thing will be given and be paid for one day. We only have the earnest of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. But one day, the whole power and the Spirit will be satiated with him when we get to heaven. He says, of the promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Verse 34 tells us, for he whom God has sent speaks the word of God. So Jesus comes he proclaims the word of God. You know, unvoiced, if a king sends one of his unvoids out, he speaks in behalf of the king. His actions, whatever he does, is on behalf of the king. It may of well be the king doing it. That's what Jesus is saying here. I speak for God because I am God and we are one. 
He says, for God does not give the spirit of the spirit by measure. Now, in context, what he's saying is that God gave his spirit to the incarnate Jesus Christ without limit. Uh, One translation says without weight. He just put it on him. Everything. We mere mortals couldn't handle that. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will fall upon me and I'll begin to cry and weep. I remember the first time the Holy Spirit fell upon me. I was in in my room and I said, he's here. He's not only inside of me, he's here. And I began to cry and weep and, and, and sing songs going across from one side of the wall to the other. And about after five minutes, I said, Lord, that's enough now. <laughs> I'm, I'm tiring out now. Can you imagine the Holy Spirit just being upon you? That will happen one day. That's what he did for Jesus because he's God. He says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand because of his great love for the son. He has placed everything in his hands. John 13, three tells us Jesus knowing that the father has given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. That was his goal. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. The greatest thing anyone could ever do to please God is to repent of their sins and give their lives to Jesus Christ. Nothing greater can be done. We, by the grace of God, we've done that. He's pleased with us. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, his necessary righteous indignation, wrath. That's what abides on the unbeliever. This wrath is future, but it's also present because endless sin will produce endless wrath. That's forever. And it comes down to one or two things. What are we going to do with Jesus Christ? Are we going to ask for forgiveness and believe and allow the spirit of God to come inside of us or we're going to stay in unbelief and the wrath of God abides over us. I tell you guys all the time, the picture I see when I read this verse of the wrath of God, he's, uh, the, the writer John says abides on us. It's like a man with his head in the guillotine 24 seven waiting for his number to be pulled if he does not repent of his sins. And that's the end. It's no turning back then. But there's a line of demarcation between righteousness and unrighteousness. And it's only one thing that separates. That's faith in Jesus Christ. Literally, when he says faith in Jesus Christ, it's passive. He does the work. Walking with his boys, they ask him a question after they forget, uh, finish speaking about who's the greatest. What is the work that we must do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus stops them, I believe, turns around and says, there's only one work, to believe. That's it, to believe. 
And when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, then we have the grace to walk. It's really not complicated. I get caught up many a times on the walking. Okay, Lord, I did this right. I did that right. He has to speak to me. He says, no, God inside of you did that right. You can loosen up a little bit, Pastor Victor, and just enjoy the ride. I'm going to complete what I started in you. The believer should be the most happiest people in the world because we're not being marked whether we're good or bad. We did well today. We didn't do so well yesterday. He's given us faith to believe in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's going to make sure we get home with him. That's what we need to know. Chapter four. Let's look at this Samaritan woman. I'm intrigued by her and her response to Jesus. She's one of those who believe in the wrath of God is not on her any longer. Let me set the scene here because this is an astounding account. We've probably read it many of times. The great king will cross at least three significant barriers to get to this woman. The socio-ethnic barrier of centuries between the Jews and the Samaritans, prejudices, he's crossing that barrier. He crosses the gender barrier and then the moral barrier by this woman assumed and probably correct being an adulteress. The heart of this account really uh, makes its way to verses 23 and 24. The father has been seeking true worshipers. That's what he does. Who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's why he has sent Jesus to this particular woman here. And it wasn't an easy trip to get there. With these barriers such as gender, religious tradition, and ethnicity, ethnicity and past moral activity, you might ask the question, why would Jesus go through all of this stuff, jump through all of these hoops and hurdles to go meet this nobody? If we seen her, we may think the same thing. Maybe she's this bag lady today. Maybe she's caught up in all of her sin and, and, and drugs and, and just going from one place to another. The scripture still speaks strong today, but Jesus seeks her out. You know, it's ironic that Andrew and probably John, the apostle of love, when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they immediately follow Jesus. And remember, Andrew goes and he gets Peter. But then Jesus calls Philip himself. And then remember, Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. Jesus didn't go and get Nicodemus, the religious elite the religious snobs. I commend Nicodemus for having questions and he goes to Jesus. 
but Jesus will go a three-day journey just to have this conversation with this woman here. Verse 1 tells us, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, why would the Holy Spirit say that? To make clear that we understand that Jesus did no baptizing. Because the Holy Spirit does not want us to be confused by the baptism of just water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus will inaugurate by his death, burial, and resurrection. And when he goes back to heaven, the Holy Spirit will come. And now when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. So the Holy Spirit is saying, don't get it twisted here. It's not about Jesus Christ baptizing anyone. What matters is his baptism in the spirit. He says he left Judea, the place of much hostility, Jerusalem, and departed again to Galilee. They received him well there. Verse four tells us, but he needed to go through Samaria. Wow. There are three routes between Jerusalem and Galilee, and only one passed through Samaria. The others bypassed it. Many of the Jews would go and take that extra day just to not go and touch the dirt in Samaria. When in a hurry, they would go through Samaria. This trip, once again, was approximately a three-day journey. The scriptures tells us he needed to go there. God was sending him to Samaria to seek some people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Verse 5 tells us, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. It was near Shechem. Sychar was between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerasim. Remember, uh, Moses goes there and he splits half the tribes up. Half stood on Gerasim, half stood on Ebal, and one pronounced the blessings and the others pronounced the cursings. If you didn't obey the Lord, that's where they're at. He says, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Genesis 33 Joseph purchased a piece of land, Jacob does, and buys it from Hamar for Shechem there. Remember, uh, Jacob's, Joseph's bones were buried in Shechem. So all of these things are important because there's a great ethnic divide here. Like it, is today a little. Just to be honest, today, I, I, I just flat out call it reverse racism, reverse prejudice. And what's so ironic to me, and I'm thankful for my mom and dad because we were raised in the summer hour household Never to look at color. It wasn't about color. We were raised in the summer hour household that we all came from Adam. 
And so the enemy uses this ethnicity, ethnicity to cause division. And Jesus is going to set the message straight here. He says in verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. Who else on their journey sat by a well? I think it was Moses. When he flees from Egypt, he sets down by a well. And he meets his wife, Sipporah, there. What fascinates me, it says, Jesus being wearied. It shows his humanity, as does his thirst there. This particular expression, wearied, indicates his labor for the harvest. Mark was telling me that he felt so worn out last night with the Valentine's uh, uh, dinners with the couples. And he said, but it was a wearing out, a tiredness of, I'm just exhausted, but I'm still joyful that we did this. Well, that's what Jesus is feeling here. I'm sure we've all felt that before. We're out ministering, we're out serving, and we get tired. We get tired, but it's a good being tired. That's what Jesus is because there's a harvest to be won. He says it was about the sixth hour. That was noon. Nicodemus approached Jesus at night because he didn't want anyone to see him as if Jesus was a sinner, as if Jesus, they looked at him in a different aspect of life, but Jesus goes a three-day journey to meet this Samaritan woman, and he does it in the daytime. Anyone and everyone can see what he's doing. This is a blistering hot midday at noon. They said it would get so hot in this region that most of the time at noon, farmers, farmers would stop doing their duty. Hearing legal cases would cease at noon. Hunting would stop at noon. Unless I had a good target and a good aim, I'd have to go in and miss. But that would stop at noon. They said it would get so hot sometimes that if you were in a battle, they would say, time out and stop at noon. The only thing, they said, the one exception that never stopped no matter how hot it got was a harvest. Jesus is weary. Jesus is tired. But there's a harvest to be had. So he continues. Verse 7 tells us, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Women usually would go in groups and in the evening or early in the morning to gather water. And they would go together for safety and, of course, conversation. That would be going on, too. By this woman coming alone makes it likely she wasn't welcomed by the other women. The Samaritans were very, very religious, just like the Jew. And they took seriously a woman's immorality. They accepted the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Pentateuch. 
They didn't care for the prophets and the writings. They didn't agree with them. They said, no, this wasn't by Moses. So they hung on to those first five books. Jewish men and Samaritans disdained sexually immoral women. And of course, they viewed Gentiles as sexually immoral anyway. Let me give you a few words from a a late line of rabbinic tradition. One said this. One should assume. Check this prejudice out. One should assume virginity only in a female proselyte who is under the age of three in one day. Otherwise, you take your own chances. Wow. So whether it was Gentiles or among their own people, they detested as horrible behavior, these premarital sex, adultery, prostitution. They said even lust. I don't know how they dealt with that. But that's the culture and that's the ingredients altogether that Jesus is about to step into. In ancient Mediterranean culture disproved of adultery, of course. They said that that is the wife's adultery, her unfaithfulness to her husband and a man's seduction of another's wife. Although it may have been frequent, they said, adultery was shameful and was considered the most grievous form of theft. That's what he's stepping into. A woman with a reputation for being promiscuous would not be welcomed among women with stricter values. This is the prism that this Samaritan woman is looking at Jesus when he begins to speak to her. When Jesus begins to speak to her, a first century, century reader of this passage would say, He's trying to hit on me. He's about to give me a line. The king of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has something better for her. He says in verse seven, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The Jewish rabbis would not even speak to a woman in public. They would not even carry a conversation. They said they had some called blind rabbis that they would be walking. If they seen a a woman on the street, they would close their eyes and they would be bumping into walls and different things. They called them bloody rabbis until they were not in view. The woman was not in view. All of this is going on. And Jesus says, I'm not going to worry about this. I'm going to seek someone who I know will be a worshiper in spirit, and in truth. That's what he goes and that's what he's doing. He says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He's stepping over not only this religious barrier, but this gender barrier also. She can't believe this Jew is speaking to her, a Samaritan. 
The scripture lets us know in verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, they could go into a Samaritan city and buy food. That was okay. That was kosher. But if a Samaritan gave them food, they wouldn't accept it. Whether it was bread, they would say, no, it's just like pork. We're not accepting it. So that's why they went to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. She didn't say Samaritan has no dealing with Jews, even though that's correct, but only because of how it started. Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. Her tone may have been smart, alecky, but she was astonished by this conversation that he was about to have with her. Can't, can't believe he's speaking to her. The master teacher, what he will do here, he will draw this woman's attention to two important things, who he was and the gift of God and that he was about to share. These two things from the major themes, it, it forms the major themes of this conversation. Verse 10 through 15, the gift of God he will speak about. And in 16 through 26, who it is that asks you for a drink. Jesus says in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God. Now, as a young man, well, you, all, you guys already know I was shy. But Marcus Moses, the guy I went to college with, the guy who hung out with me, he may have used that line. Hey, I'm the gift of God. That's what she thought Jesus was saying here. Ride with me. She's thinking he's about to try to pick her up. Jesus isn't about her, that. Jesus and answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Of course, the gift of God is that Jesus gives his spirit. This is the living water. That word gift is the word doria found here in the gospel. Only here is found four times in the book of Acts. And it speaks of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus lets her know if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you're not born from above. You're not born again. He's speaking of salvation here. Romans, I think chapter eight says something like this. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We must have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. God in the Old Testament is described as the source of living water. He says in Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water that was treasured, that was valuable. If you found a stream of something, a well that, that, that was living water, you had something. Because usually when it would rain, they would make these cisterns 
and they would have to drink out of those. And if you got a cup of water out of a cistern, you had plenty of protein. Amoebas and bugs and everything else crawling around in there, you were drinking all of that. So this living water he's speaking of, it was prodded. Jeremiah, he says this, the fountain of living waters. You've forsaken that and you've honed out these cisterns. Not only are they cisterns, he says they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now she's learning something new because Jeremiah said this, but they only read the first five books. So it's good to know the full counsel of God. Maybe if she had read that, that would have helped her out. Jesus is saying he's speaking of this living water that he can give, which is the Holy Spirit. It's the water of life. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And then she says something funny. Are you greater than our father Jacob? When she says our, she's not loafing Jesus Christ, putting Jesus Christ in with this. There's a divide there. She says, our father, the Samaritan's father is Jacob. I'm sure Jesus smiled inside. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? The woman might not know all of the tenets of her faith. But she's divided these five books of the Pentateuch by Samaritans and Gentiles. She knows that much. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? And the form of the question in Hebrew screams out, no, you're not. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? That's how it reads. You know, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad because here Jesus goes from Judea to Galilee to Samaria and the Samaritans are saying that Jacob is our father. But when he gets to Judea, they are screaming that Abraham is our father. And Jesus is shaking his head saying, man, will these children ever get it? but he's going to teach. He says in verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. All the water that you're drawing from is cool. It's clean. It's refreshing. But you're going to thirst again. It may satiate you now. It may fulfill your thirst now. But in the long run, it will not. She's going to this well by herself day in and day out. Jesus comes there every day. Every day, her, for lack of a better word, esteem, her value of who she is goes down less and less and less every day because she's been ostracized. Nobody wants to be around her and everybody demeans her if they see her. 
but something inside of her is whispering, you're valuable. You're important. I don't care what men say. I don't care what women say. I don't care what any other person says about you. You're important. And she's about to find that out. He says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, those who receive the gift of the Spirit, who invites Jesus Christ into their hearts, Jesus says, you will never thirst. Hold hold up. Wait a minute, PV. I'm a believer. And I still thirst for things. So what are you saying? Well, this is what he's saying. The reason we may thirst is not because of the spirit of God in us. And he clears it up more in in John chapters 14 and 16, Jesus teaching about the spirit. There the role of the spirit, and we know this, is to take Jesus's place in the disciples' life after he returns to the Father. The spirit mediates Christ's presence to his disciples, to his believers, creating that sense of intimacy within us with the Father and also the Son. It's this relationship Jesus is speaking of that lasts until eternity. And it's that human thirst that every person that's ever walked this earth and that will walk this earth has. I think it was uh, Voltaire who says, no, it was Pascal who says, Every human being has this God-shaped vacuum inside of them that nothing will satisfy, nothing will thirst. We try to fill it with everything, but God created it, and he's the only one that can satisfy it. That's what the Holy Spirit, so yes, I might still desire this or that, But no matter what's going on in my life, good or bad, the Holy Spirit is within me and I still have that joy and I still have that peace. And it's not my will that matters. It's not my will that I run after anymore. It's Jesus' will. He says, but whoever drinks of this water that I shall give him will never thirst. Then he explains why. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The gift of the Spirit will be something experienced continually within the very being of the person who receives Jesus. It's like that artesian well, once again, that just continues and continues to flow, to give me life when things are going bad, to give me life when things are doing, going good, to give me life when I'm disappointed if fat girl's not doing good today and her bones are hurting and all those things. I still have that joy that I'm not going to be here forever, that if I live 70 years, Lord, you give me 70 years I'm closer to the end, so my walk should be even more strong with you because I want to finish well. I'm not going to get caught up 
on the going-ons of everything in this world. I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. He's my living water. He sustains me. He keeps me. That's what Jesus is telling her. And when he begins to speak about this living water, remember that living water around the throne of God where the trees are nourished in the kingdom of God. The same spirit is in us. It says in Revelation 22, and he showed me, speaking of John, John, the apostle of love, and he showed me a river, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of his streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Imagine that. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. We get that word therapeua. We get the word therapeutics from. Somehow, even in heaven, when nations come, it will be for the healing of the nations. Guys, we only have the down payment here, the Arabon of the spirit. Hold on. The whole redemptive price is coming. And what Jesus Christ is doing here with this woman, he's wetting her appetite. Little by little, showing her care, tenderness, and kindness, not wanting anything in return. He only wants to give to her, to give her something she's been searching for in all of the wrong places and being used and abused for the trouble of her searching. I love this verse. It is the goodness, it is the kindness of God that does what? That leads us to repentance. And that's what Jesus is about to do. He's been kind, he's been gentle, he's been caring, he's been loving, but he's going to say, in order to get this living water, girl, you've got to do something here. That's what he's going to tell her. He says in verse 15, the woman said to him, because he's whetted her appetite. She's beginning to be reeled in. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to drink. She hasn't completely figured it out yet. She doesn't have all of her theological ducks in a row yet, but she knows the man that she's talking to, he's a different kind of man. He's speaking the truth, and he's a trustworthy man. And Jesus is saying, how bad do you want this living water? Do you want it bad enough to come clean? Do you want it bad enough to stop playing church, to stop playing the hypocrite? Do you want it bad enough to repent of your sins and believe? Jesus said to her, here it is, go call your husband and come here. Bring him along too if he wants to come. Can you imagine the conversation they're having? And she's, a, she's beginning to loosen up a little bit. She's beginning to say, that, this Jewish guy, 
He's all right. We're talking. And then the thing that has me ostracized, the thing that has me getting abused at home, whether it's physically or mentally, the thing that has me hanging my head as I go and gather this water, the thing that has me in this hot, blistering sun at noon every day, he brings it up. The conversation was going so well. Do we really have to talk about this, Jesus? The woman tries to dodge it. Verse 17 says, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus is cool and he's smart and he's witty. He, he, I would have said, you're lying. I know about you. Not the king of kings. Not the one that publicans and sinners love to hang out with. Because Jesus, no matter who he hung out with, sooner or later, the atmosphere would be changed. By the way, that's why he could go by himself. That's why he said his, sent his disciples out, how? Two by two. Jesus can go by himself. I like what uh, John Corson said. He said, he said, Peter, talking to one of his boys, he says, you want to go to this party. I tell you what, Peter, if you can go to this party and change the atmosphere, you can go. Peter John stayed at home that night. You see, if we go by ourselves, we need to change the atmosphere. And Jesus could change the atmosphere. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said well. I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have is not your husband. A near is the word there for husband. In that, in that you spoke truly. Now stick with me. If we take a near to mean husband, she could have been married five times. And each time her husband had died. You call that type of woman black widow. They would have been investigating that one. <laughs> so I don't think that happened. Or each time she had been divorced. Now we have to understand in a society where divorce was almost entirely done by the man. That could have happened. And now she was living with a man who was not her husband, meaning someone else's husband. But, and this is what I think, if a near is taken to mean a man, it's possible that she had never been married, but had had a series of affairs with men culminating in a final adulterous relationship. This woman is beat down. This woman is depressed. This woman has no hope. Her life, she said, hey, it's just going to be an eternal living hell. But something inside of her still has a flicker of hope. If not, she would have ended the conversation a long time ago. 
Jesus said he must needs go through Samaria. Because this Samaritan woman, no matter how beaten down she is, we have to understand is an image bearer of God. And that's what he cares about. Whether she's in this situation because of her poor decision or not, she's been running and she's been chasing a goal. But she's been dipping from this broken cistern that can't hold water. Whether it's relationships that, are, that is our broken cistern. Whether it's a career that's a broken cistern. Whether it's the intellect that I can do it all. I can make my way. That's a broken cistern. Climbing the ladder of success. That's a broken cistern. Being good. That's a broken cistern. Chasing the American dream, whatever that is, that's a broken cistern. I go by my own feelings when I should be walking by faith. That's a broken cistern because any of those avenues, you guys, whether you do well in them or not, after it's all said and done, cannot get you to the kingdom of God. That's what matters. Enjoy life. Have a great time. But Yahweh says, I will have no other God in my presence before me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. I know what you need. I will give them to you. I will provide for you. I will satisfy you. We can't get away from that if we're going to walk with the Lord. Everything else that I said is passing pleasures. Hebrews tells us Moses gave up being Pharaoh's son. And all of these passing pleasures of this world to give his life to Yahweh God. Deny myself, pick up my cross and follow him. It all states the same and means the same thing. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Is she wanting to change the subject or not? I don't understand. But she just doesn't want the Lord to be this personal with her. Is she feeling embarrassed? Maybe. So she shifts her opinion of Jesus. So she's moving along slowly. From a Jewish man to a Jewish prophet. And when she says, you must be a prophet. She's not thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Speaking of the prophet who would come on the scene. Speaking of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. This is a Samaritan woman. And they had their own messianic figure. His name, the the name was given to Hib. And she was speaking of that prophet. So she still has not made the transition yet. Jesus says in verse 20, our fathers, she says, our fathers worship on this mountain. I'm sure she points at Mount Gerasim. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Got to give you a little history. There's no way around it. So stick with me. Jeroboam, you've heard of him before. A mighty man of valor. 
could have did great things and did a few great things. He was uh, Solomon's chief, his man. Solomon had a son who took the throne. His name was what? Rehoboam. And so when Rehoboam takes the throne, Jeroboam is walking one day and he has his uh, shawl on and uh, the prophet Ahijah takes it and tears it and he tears it into 10 pieces and he gives 10 pieces to Jeroboam. And he says, Jeroboam, these 10 tribes are going to belong to you. He couldn't believe it. But I'm going to keep this because God has promised a light will always be in Judah. The Messiah is coming there. Jeroboam flees to Egypt because when Rehoboam finds out about it, he's wanting to kill him. So as times go by, now this is a one united kingdom, Israel, at this time. But there's a problem. And it's always a problem when taxes becomes too high. That's what Rehoboam was doing. Had taxation on the people. They could hardly bear. Jeroboam comes back. And Jeroboam says, okay, I will allow the people to serve you. We will be a united kingdom if you slack up on these taxes. Make a long story short. He says, come back in a week. Jeroboam comes back in a week. And Rehoboam says, no, he listens to the young dudes and says, no, I'm not going to do that. Jeroboam says this to your tents, O Israel. We don't have anything to do with the son of Jesse, a divided kingdom. It splits right there. First Kings tells us this chapter 12. If these people go up. So let me say this first as they go. To Mount Gerasim. Well, really, it was Dan and Bethel at the time, the 10 tribes, doing okay, worshiping Yahweh God. But Jeroboam had a problem. He says, This is the issue, and I'm worried about this. The people know they should go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and that's a long way. And I'm worried about if they go back to Jerusalem. They will stay there and they will begin to worship down there. And he says, I can't do this. He says, I'm going to make two golden calves. And they're going to worship up here. Let me read it. He says, if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to the Lord. Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Israel, like I said, becomes a divided kingdom. In the 8th century BC, the Assyrians, they come in. And they take over. They deport all of the best people, they say, back to Assyria. Judah is laughing. Judah is saying that will never happen to us. But what the Assyrians were known for, they imported other people into the land. Two years later, here comes the Babylonians. They come in and they take all of the good, so-called good men and women of Judah. And they take them to Babylon. 
when King Cyrus finally comes on the throne, the Persian king, he allows the Jews to come back from Babylon. They're already, the Jews that is in Samaria is already back. So when they get there, these Jews from Babylon, we know the account, they begin to build the temple. The Samaritans, they say, hey, let us help you guys. We're part of one another. The Jews said, "Uh uh-uh, we have nothing to do with you guys. You guys have been intermarried. You've intermingled. You have nothing to do with us. The Samaritan says, okay, we will build our temple on Mount Gerasim. That was the split. That was the divide. That is the prejudice prejudice that Jesus is stepping over. And this woman has to because there's animosity in her heart for the Jews. And so he has to work through all of those things to get her to become a believer. So she says in verse 20, now that you're a prophet, you answer this question for me. Our fathers worship on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus doesn't even answer a statement right here. He says this, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship what you do not know. He knew what they worshiped because they had those two golden calves up there. Even though they were following some of the tenets of the scriptures, they had everything else had infiltrated in that. Paul tells us, don't you know when you're worshiping idols, you're worshiping what? Demons. So he says, I don't know what you're worshiping up there on Mount Gerasim, but it's not the one true God. He tells her, tells her this, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus informs her that Samaritan worship on Mount Gerasim was ignorant worship. Jesus worshiped, the Jews worshiped in Jerusalem and their worship was based on the, the revelation of the word given by God. That's correct worship. That's true worship. And that's what he's getting her to understand. Jesus has been nice. He has been compassionate. He has been good. The reason I'm letting you know this, he still speaks the truth to her, not at the expense of truth. And that's what we need to do. We can be kind. We can be compassionate. We should be. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. And he gets her there. He says, no, what you're, even though you're passionate about Mount Gerasim, even though you're passionate about the five books, the Pentateuch, you're missing out on the rest. You're not worshiping Yahweh God. You're not worshiping him correctly. And in verse 23, she says, Jesus says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper will worship the father in spirit And in truth, for the father is seeking such to worship him. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the spirit comes. And no matter if you're in Galilee or Jerusalem, in America or India, in Israel or Iran, 
if you've been born again, you can worship God. Thanks to Jesus Christ. That's what he's letting her know. He says in verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He's not defining the essence of God, but showing that God is a God of a different order than human beings. The natural man cannot worship God. We can never worship God unless we are being drawn by the Holy Spirit. There's our opportunity. And then we repent of our sins and give our lives to the Lord. That's what's going to happen all the way through the gospel of John. They're worshiping Judaism. Rules, regulations, do this, don't do that. And there's no intimacy there. And they can't do it anyway. Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the law. And now he sends his spirit. And anyone who will repent and give their lives to him, the spirit of God will come inside of us. He will make his abode inside of us. And then we want to serve and worship the Lord. He says in verse 25, The woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Will the worship team come up? I who speak to you am he. I divided this chapter. Should I end it here? Should I end it there? I went back and forth. Because we know the account, she will go and she will begin to proclaim what Jesus Christ has done for. She will give her life to the Lord. While Nicodemus will do it, it's going to take him a while. I don't know what any of you have done. But I know one thing. The blood of Jesus Christ can wash all of that sin away. I don't know what you've been through or maybe what you've been going through or anyone watching online. Jesus Christ, he's that fountain of living water. My life, I tell you guys all the time, when I gave my life to the Lord, I knew if I repented truly, that he would come, but I was still amazed at the love that he would lavish on me. And when I'm I'm talking about the love that he gave me, that I knew, that I knew, that I knew that I was saved. Because at that time, I said, man, nobody loves me. And in the back of my mind, I said, I know my mom and dad loved me. I know Lydia loved me, but gosh, I've did so much. I've said things I shouldn't have said and done things I shouldn't have did and had good parents. And I sinned against light because I knew right from wrong. And Lord, I've tried to do it on my own. I've tried to be good, but after two, three weeks, back to my own self. And so I understand I can relate to this Samaritan woman 
Because there was a time wherever I would go and whatever I would do, I would go with my head hanging down. Oh, they know. They know my history. They know this and that. But when I did ask him to come, and when I was honest about asking him and say, Lord, take my life, do with it whatever you want to, that fountain of living water came in and he washed me as white as snow. And then, quick story, I had learned a welding course and I, uh, Pastor Terry was taking me because I didn't have my license, taking me from different welding shops and I was applying for jobs. And uh, I'd go back and I said, man, Lord, are you going to bless me with a job? And he did. And one job he blessed me when I was there. And the guy said, hey, Victor, you're a great worker. You're this and that. But I saw your history. And we're going to have to let you go. And I, and I told Lydia, I said, man, this is crazy. And then I thought about what David said. Lord, you judge me. You punish me. Because I know you have mercy. I know you forgive, but man, he won't forgive and he doesn't forget. And I've been walking with him now for 30-something years, and he's provided. And I heard a pastor say this. One day, he told me this. He said, you will look back, and you will not recognize the man you were. And I said, that's going to take a lot of walking. Well, it's been 30-something years. And I look back, and sometimes I'm, I'm lying on my bed, and I said, did I do that? Did I say that? And the reason I'm sharing this with you, I relate with this Samaritan woman, and I relate with the joy that she had when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would say, hey, I've walked a three-day journey just to share myself with you. And I don't care what you've done, what you've been through. You're an image bearer. I will hang on a cross and resurrect in three days if for no one else but you. That's what he told me. He said, you give me your life and I'll take care of the rest. He's a faithful witness. He's a good God. He loves us. And all he wants from us is to give us, give him our hearts, Lord. Let's pray. Father, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that you would love someone like me. I know I'm not the only one. I'm amazed that even in my wondering, you love me. Your love doesn't stop with me. It doesn't stop with everyone in this room or those that are watching. That's just how you do it. That's just how you roll. You are a good God. You are a loving God. You are a compassionate God, but you're a God of truth. You're a God if I want or we want to give our lives to you. We've got to repent of our sins. And so, Lord, I ask if there's anyone here that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that you would draw. 
that you would reveal yourself, that you would lavish your love upon them, that you would walk that extra mile for them to hold them and speak truth to them. Father, we love you. Give us hearts to continue to love you and continue to follow you. May our love increase for you. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ to the Father God. Amen and amen.